Amen. And so, Psalm 89, one were taken in two bites in two sections. We looked at the first section, verses 1 through 37, last week, and we saw the theme of it is the faithfulness of God. We saw in verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And so he's excited, and that followed hot on the heels of the previous psalm, where in that psalm from verses 1 all the way through 18, there was no hope offered at all in there. And it's almost as if verse 18 to verse 1, there is this enlightening on God and who God is. And so he's praising the faithfulness of God based upon his mercy. And we saw the historical reference that he seems to be referring to. We're not told this specifically, but it's all based upon the promises of God and specifically the promises of God that were given in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God promised King David that he would have a descendant to sit on the throne forever. We'll look at that a little bit as we get into the study. But what the psalmist is doing, he's trying to marry, and it's what we struggle with as well. He's trying to marry the promises of God in with the realities of life and that can be a difficult thing because things are happening that we don't always understand and the magnitude of the things that happen can be overwhelming at times and even sometimes it doesn't seem like the two can even be married together at all when in actuality god god is lord over all and lord help us to see in our hardship Help us to see even in the midst of our doubt that, God, you're faithful and you remain faithful even when, well, we don't see your hand moving. And so again, last week we saw a God who possesses awesome attributes and we looked at some of those attributes and his attributes, even more importantly or just as importantly, are seasoned with grace and mercy. So we know that our God is powerful. We know that our God knows all. He, we know that he's, he's ever-present. But if he's not merciful and gracious, those things would be powerful attributes of an enemy. Because if your enemy is powerful, all-powerful, he's ever-present and knows everything, then you have a foe that is going to overwhelm you. But if God is merciful and grace, and he is faithful, and those things attached, those, those attributes attached to him, we have a wonderful God who is able to move in our life to the extreme. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through, 25, 23 through 25, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and also will do it. So the psalmist starts off well, as we just saw in verses 1 and 2, and it's almost as if verses 1 and 2 happen when it seems like th maybe things are going better. Maybe it's those times when he's at church, maybe he's in small group, prayer partners or whatever, and just kind of strengthened through the power of his might through others. But then we come to our, the beginning of our verses tonight, in verses 38 through 39, and look how he's kind of changed his tune. It's as if he's left church now and by himself, and he feels overwhelmed once again. Verse 38, But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it into the ground, or you have defiled it by casting it into the ground. What he is experiencing is what we all experience. And this is, can be the difficulty of reading and seeing the promises of God, 
but also examining the realities of life. Because in every promise that God gives to us corporately, and this is important, and this is what the psalmist is experiencing, every promise that God gives to us either corporately or individually, there's always a faith gap. A faith gap between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And that faith gap, for some, it's going to be quite a long time. For others, it may be short, but regardless, it can be difficult. It can be difficult to wait upon the Lord. It can be difficult just simply to maybe endure a trial or whatever it might be. But again, we have such rich promises of God, and we can wonder, how long, Lord? Well, as long as, just as long is as necessary, and so we need to wait patiently in that faith gap. Just think of Abraham as he was given great promises. Abram was his name at first, the father of many. And how many was he the father of? None. And then changed his name, still without a child, to Abraham, father of many nations. And he still didn't have anybody. And so there was that long faith gap. He even acted forth in the flesh in the midst of it and produced an Ishmael. But God was faithful and God delivered on his promises. This is the, if he will never leave me or forsake me, then where is he now in my life? If God is going to establish Israel as such a great nation, then what's going on? The psalmist is wondering. Because it seems as if the psalmist is experiencing what we have seen, either in the division of the nation, or at least in Judah, the southern portion, or he's experiencing the fall when Babylon was able to come in. It, it's some great catastrophe that calls into question the promise that was given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Lord, give me, gave us such great promises, but what's going on? Again, just think of nation Israel. It's taken into captivity. And just put yourself in a, a Jew who was left behind to till the ground. And as you're tilling the hard ground and you look over and you can see, because it's on one of the highest portions in the area of Judah where the temple was, and as all you see is a pile of rubble, you would think, what happened to our God? And if you were well-versed in the word of God, you would wonder, what happened to all of the promises? You would think either God has completely forsaken us or our God was unable to deliver us not understanding the big picture. Thank God we're able to look back and see the work that God was doing, and we're able to extrapolate that into our day, and even in the midst of what seems to be hopeless, we can have great faith. And so the psalmist is just simply being honest as he states what he thinks that he sees. Again, verse 38, you have cast us off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all of his hedges or his fortresses. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in the battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame, Selah, or dwell upon that. And so as he's examining these things, what is it that he's seeing? And you can pretty much look at this from kind of two perspectives based upon what is being said here. 
He, he, he uses that term you quite a bit here, and it's as if he's blaming God. Now, you can do that. I mean, not that it's a good thing, but we do do that. Or we can do it from the perspective of, okay, Lord, you have to reconsider these things and to come to the realization God has allowed these things to happen. And so looking back at Israel, what had happened, Babylonian captivity, we'll look at it in that light. And Judah has been taken captive and laid waste. Verse 39, you have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. Now again, you can, this could be a blaming of God or it could be a meditation. And the reason I say it could be a meditation because again, at the end of verse 45 is the word selah, musical interlude for the purpose of interpretation. Okay, our crown is profound. Our, our crown is laid waste. God allowed that to happen. Verse 40, you have brought his strongholds to ruin. This city that was impenetrable, that seemed to be so strong, God has allowed it to be overthrown. There's got to be a reason. Verse 41, all who pass by the way plunder him. They're picking us clean, Lord, but you're allowing that to happen. Verse 42, you have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You've even strengthened the enemy for this purpose. Matter of fact, through the prophet Jeremiah, he referred to Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. God is doing this. God's doing this for a reason and purpose. You have not sustained him in battle. God has allowed us to be defeated. Verse 44, you have made his glory cease. We used to be during the days of David and even into Solomon. It was even greater in Solomon's day. We were just such a glorious nation and all of it is now gone. Verse 45, the days of his youth you have shortened. And so He's seeing all of these things that have happened and he's coming to this realization that it's God who has allowed these things to happen. And when you can come to that conclusion that God has allowed the situations and circumstances of our life, as you come to the realization that he has allowed these things to come to pass, God then, you understand, has reason and purpose in them. Nothing is going on that is out of his control. And so where is the hope in all of this? Again, the hope is in the pronoun you, because these are things that God has caused to happen. Now, look at it from the perspective if God has not caused them to happen. If God has not caused these events to happen, then these events are random. And if they are random, then they are (laughs) meaningless, and there is no purpose to them. And so we can just think the condition of our country is cyclical and, you know, it's going to get worse, but then it's, excuse me, it's going to get better. The economy, no, God's got his hand on all of these things. If there's anything out there that is spiraling out of control, then that means that God is not in control. And if God is not in control, then things are going to be happening that are beyond his will and beyond his desire. And so as far as Judah and the hardship that goes on in our life, nothing happens that is beyond the control of God. If it's random and it's meaningless, then there's no possibility of a real solution. If God has caused them to happen, though, then these events are planned out and they're for meaning in the, in the, in the lives of God's people. If planned and meaningful, then there is a solution to the situation then God is doing this work and we can have a confidence that we are in the hands of God and these things are playing out because he has a desired conclusion to them. So take it out of Israel, put it into your life. 
regardless of the magnitude of the things that are going on, God's got reason and purpose in the midst of them. He is allowing them to happen and to continue because he's got a good work that he wants to see worked out. He's in perfect control over something that may seem to be random or may seem to be spinning out of control, but God's got his hand upon them because our God is truly that. He is God. And so if God is the one who is involved in the situation, he is the only one who can be involved in the solution. If God has allowed the situation, then it's God who has the solution to the situation. And it's in him that we must trust. If no one in the problem, then there's no one in this situation. But our God sits on the throne. Remember the throne? The place of authority in which he governs over the affairs of mankind. First Thessalonians 5.9 For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is constantly working out the salvation that he has first worked within us and he is working through us. And all of these things are working together for the good. What is the good? The good is always the salvation of mankind. He's building our relationship with him. Why is he building our relationship with him? Because he wants to use that relationship in the lives of those who are unbelievers. We've just read there's people out there just in the prayer request that we just prayed for. There's people out there, they're dying apart from Jesus Christ. They have cancer. Uh, one of them may have Lou Gehrig's disease. There's all of these things that are going on in the lives of people who are unbelievers. And so what I come, what we need to come to the understanding of is, is that the things that God is using in my life, he's refining me. He's refining me because he wants to use me and he wants to use me in greater detail than he is using me, than using you today. And it's these things that we have to come to an understanding that the good that he's working at with all the things are how he wants to work through us. And so as I've said before, maybe you haven't said it in a while, the things that you are going through today, a big part of it, is so that you can relate to something somebody less mature than you is going to be going through tomorrow. If you're going through a financial hardship today, part of that purpose is so that you can be prepared to minister to somebody who's going to be going through a financial hardship in the future. How are you ministered to? You're ministered by somebody who has been there before, whatever the situation may be. A born-again believer who has gone through that. And maybe they've even failed in the midst of it, but now they're able through their experience to minister to you, to build you up and strengthen you, to comfort you with the comfort which with they had been comforted with, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And so God is using the situations and circumstances of your life to prepare you to be a minister in somebody else's because why else would he be doing these things? He, he doesn't have to... You know, we, we call it, and I probably have used the term prepared for heaven. I don't need to be prepared for heaven. I'm born again, and he could take me right then, and I'd fit in just fine because that's a work of God. There, there's no work that needs to be completed in my life other than the work of salvation here on this earth. And so that, he's not preparing me for heaven. Once I'm in Christ, I'm prepared for heaven. And so what is he preparing me for? Preparing me for you. And he's preparing you for me. He's preparing us for each other. And he's preparing us for the people who are lost outside of these walls. 
He's preparing us for this great work of ministry which he has set before us. And so what that tells me is these trials and tribulations that he is bringing us through, he's bringing us through for his reason and for his purpose. And that's the good that is to be worked out through all of these things. And it's when we see these things that when the next trial comes or the trial you're occurring, it's no big deal. No, that's not true either. It's always a big deal because he's always intensifying these things because he's maturing us and enabling us and he's building our strength in, in, through our faith and through our trust in him. And just when you think you've got perfect trust, then it's kinda, he, he kind of turns up the heat just a little bit more. But again, he's doing that so that when we, are, when we come to those certain steps, those certain milestones in our lives, we're just so much better, or so much more enabled to minister to those, again, who are lost apart from him. 46 through 51. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Have you ever been there going through a trial? Lord, how long? And Lord, where are you at? And again, how, just as long as is needed, but it's, it's, he's in the midst of this, this trial that again, it seems like God has left him and has forsaken him. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created for all the children of men? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Selah. Lord, where are your former loving kindness, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. All this seems to be a cry of unbelief or a lack of faith. Well, it seems to be, but we need to see where is he leading, where is he looking to? Even in the midst of not understanding what's going on, trying to make sense of going on, even seems to be kind of trying to manipulate God just a little bit. Remember how short my time here is, Lord. And, and, and so as he's going through these things, he's at least looking to the Lord. He's looking to the only source that is able to move and interact in his life, the only source that is able to change the situation. When man comes to a helpless situation, he will look outside of himself. And the question is, who do you look for your help? Who do you look to in your time of trouble? Not just throwing an SOS prayer up to the heavens, but truly seeking God out in the midst of the trials. Having faith that God is seated upon the throne and God is in the position of control, understanding that and seeking him out and seeking him out diligently for long periods of time if necessary. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, when the trials start to hit, the tribulation starts to hit, and it says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And again, that would be kind of hard. He's talking about born-again believers who die in the midst of tribulation. How long, Lord? Just as long as is necessary. And it's a hard thing that is going to be going on in the future, but it's hard things that gone on in the past, and it's a hard thing that goes on in our lives today. But again, God's just doing a work in the midst of it. 
and it shows us that the issue is not God's mercy or faithfulness, but God's timing. And it all comes down to the matter of perspective, because sometimes our perspective can become warped, because we can go through these trials, and sometimes we think, well, God has left me, or God is, is doing this to me simply because I deserve it. Because when you're going through a trial, you're reminded, and it's the devil, not the Lord, of every sin that you have ever committed. You're reminded of, of every wrong thing that you have done and every way you have been unfaithful to God. But if you get nothing else out of this study, remember this, because we'll talk about his unmerited favor as his grace. God's faithfulness is unmerited as well. Because if God's faithfulness is not unmerited, God being faithful to you, if that's not unmerited, then that means that we work for him to be faithful in our lives. And that's not true. God is faithful in our lives simply because he loves us and it's according to his nature that he is faithful. There's going to be situations and circumstances because of our sins, because of our disobedience. Yes, without a doubt. But these are not things that God are doing to us. It's the work that he's doing within us. And as God is faithful, he's always there. Why? Because it's unmerited. Because that's who he is and that's how he is. Every reason that you can think of that God should not be faithful in your life, well, it's true, but he has chosen to set his grace upon you regardless and continue to be faithful in your life. And so the psalmist, wanting to move things along as he's going through that trial, as we all can be as we go through certain trials, he makes two appeals for God to move. The first appeal is, as I stated, come on, God, I'm not going to live for forever. Remember how short my time is for what futility. I'm in verse 47. Have you created all the children of man? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Lord, I'm going to die and there's nothing I can do about it. And Lord, I, I, I want to see the, the power of your might and I want to have your faithfulness displayed to me. Now, the psalmist here doesn't understand the afterlife to the degree that we understand. Again, God is doing this great work for our time here on earth, but there is going to be the time when we are with the Lord in heaven. Second, he seems to even be manipulating the situation in 49 through 51. Lord, where are your former loving kindness, which you swore to David in your truth? Lord, you made great promises to David, Lord. You need to show me, Father, where, where's the result of these promises? Remember, Lord, verse 50, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Lord, this is, this is just killing me, God. I, I have a heart for you and I have a heart for your people, but there's just things that are going on that I don't understand right now. In Psalm 72, verse 13, it says, He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. In Luke 19, 40, But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should cry, keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. God is going to be worshipped. He's going to be glorified. And, and, and so the fact of the matter is, is that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Job came to that realization. 
And so as these things are, are, are common to man because of the sinful nature of man, because God loves me and wants to use me, all these equations that are going on, and we see those who are suffering and it breaks our heart and we want to do more and, and, and we want to see God's great promises fulfilled. We're looking for the next revival to come, but we see how evil the world is out there. And again, it just breaks our heart. Pull back from all of that stuff. Pull back from that stuff and hear the soft, still voice of the Lord. We're not going to change the world in a day. God could do that, but God has chosen not to do that. Maybe he will do it. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, I know that he teaches me and trains me for the next step to be taken. And then, a lot of times, he waits for me to take that next step. The just shall live by faith. And so I take that next step, and then I go through that training for the next step. And if I'm faithful in that, and then we get together, and we are, as a church are faithful in that, and then the church is faithful in that, we see God do good and glorious things. What is God going to do as far as this church? Well, you know, we're praying about the building situation, and the church isn't, the building isn't the church. The church is what is in the building. But nonetheless, a building is necessary. There's no doubt about that. But I was kind of, I remember how, you know, as a pastor, you don't just, be anointed or, or ordained as a pastor and you know everything you think you do but you don't God shows you that step by step and and so I had we have a church and we're going to lose our building and we have nowhere to go and I'm speaking of back in 2004 and I know God's called us to this area of Ontario but there's no place here and I don't know what God's going to do the county had bought the property that we were in from the landlord that we had at the time, and the county was very, very gracious to us, but they said that we needed to be out, and this is when, in November, and we needed to be out the following, um, the following August. And then I'm just wondering, what are we going to do? And the thing that I know is, is that God said, I'm taking care of it, I'm doing the work. But the thing myself is telling me is, we gotta do something. You know, we got to come alongside God and help him or nudge him along because, you know, things aren't going how we think they should. Well, bless you, that one day I was sitting in my office and that guy comes into my office and says, hey, are you interested in a building? And that was on November 4th. And on December 6th, my birthday, we had our very first service in this place. I had no clue that this, there was a church to be had here. No idea whatsoever. But God brought the person. He just came walking in unannounced into my office. And it was just the hand of God. And, and, and so where are we going to go? Or what's going to happen with this? I don't know. Maybe we'll stay here. I just don't know what's going to happen. But I know God's going to do something. And, and, and you know, our, our lease is up at the end of February. And it's getting a little bit closer. But I'm thinking, okay, well, last time it was about eight months. And now it's about four months. I should have at least twice as much faith as I had way back then. And so God's constantly stretching us. And so we're doing the work, doing the effort, and seeing what we can do. But nonetheless, it's God who is going to provide. And so in the midst of all of this, when we can feel rejected, know this, that you are wanted, that you are thought about, you are cared for, you are empowered, you're enabled, and you are expected accepted god has made our lives necessary the the necessity of our lives how necessary our lives are are built upon god because that's how god is glorified and god uses his church to achieve his purposes 
So don't we have, you can look at this, and again, if it is based upon 2 Samuel chapter 7, and whether it's not, is or isn't, it doesn't matter because the illustration still stands. And so if we're using 2 Samuel as the basis for, if you will, the argument of the psalmist, the things he's looking at, he's looking at the state of Judah based upon the promises of God, and this would be one of the promises of God. And so let's just go ahead, turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. I walked into a spider web earlier and you still feel like the web is on me. I didn't know I could disco dance until I walked into the spider web and now I... <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Now these are promises that God is giving to David. Now again, don't take that just kind of on face value. This is promises. Almighty God who inhabits the future is giving to King David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed or descendant after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we know that that was fulfilled in David's seed, or his son, King Solomon. And God says, okay, he's going to do that, and I will, future, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Now, when he says him, he's not necessarily, and I know he's not actually speaking about Solomon here. He's speaking the he is the seed, is the descendant forever. Verse 15, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, you know, after you die. Your throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan, Nathan is a prophet, he spoke to David. And so God's word came to David and it came to him very powerfully. But now you fast forward, not just to back to Psalm 89, but to what happened in Judah. And you can wonder, okay, this isn't, coming through it's not being fulfilled like we thought it would be fulfilled there were times when not only did Israel not have a sitting king but Israel even ceased to exist and so again God said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 13 he shall build the house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Now that can be kind of confusing and it looks like verse 14 is just thrown in there. And, and, and it just doesn't even really fit the context. Maybe that God will chasten the future seeds, you know, as they sit on the throne. But again, there's no seed seated upon the throne at this time. And and so it can be almost confusing. Well, we can look back and we can understand this to be a messianic psalm. And we know that the descendant of David who is seated upon the throne, now he's not just saying for all, you know, the, the, all of the existence of Israel. He's not saying for, you know, all the time here on earth. He's saying for all eternity. 
And so that we know is only fulfilled in Messiah. It's only fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in in verse 14 in 2 Samuel 7 is the one that gives us the understanding because when it says commits iniquity, if you look that up, those words up in the original language, it's defined as to be bent over in his stance, implying a great physical or emotional weight on the body so as to be humbled. Well, we can digest that and understand that happened. The meaning of that verse is, if he is the seed, is bent over by a great weight, sin, on the body, God is saying, I will punish him. And so the idea here is to look at these things, is to study, and when something's in there that doesn't make sense or you don't really understand, is to dig in deep, and that's where it comes that you be good to have a, well, I'm not going to get into this whole thing, but what I do is, I mean, I've got computer programs now that do a lot of this, but if you don't have one, if you have a concordance or something that has the Strong's number, I have an interlinear Bible. An interlinear Bible has the Hebrew, it has the English, but it also has the Strong's number. This man named Strong, he went through the whole Bible and every word he attached a number to. And so, like words have like numbers but you take that number and then i have a hebrew lexicon and you open up and and even the bible programs i have aren't as thorough as doing it this way and then you open up the hebrew lexicon another term would be like a hebrew dictionary and so you find the number the strong's number for commits iniquity you look it up in the lexicon and that's where you get the definition and so you have a verse that you don't really understand doesn't seem like it's fitting the context or whatever, you can dig a little bit deeper. You can dig a little bit deeper and find out, what is God telling me? You can do it, and it it works the very same way in the New Testament as well. I have uh, an interlinear Bible. Actually, my interlinear Bible contains both the Hebrew and the Greek, and so I can look up the Greek, find the Strong's number in the Greek, and this time go to a Greek lexicon and find out what the Greek word has to say. And so you're just going to find a, a, a bit more depth of your study when you do it that way. Do you have to go to that extent? No, you don't have to go to that extent, but you gain a lot more insight. You gain a lot more understanding when you do. And it's that which God has given to us, his word, that I, I can read it as if I got saved yesterday, I could read the Bible and it would speak to me. Even as a mature Christian, I can read the Bible and I can do so for enjoyment just to hear from my Lord, do so devotionally. But if I want to really dig in, I can really dig in as well. And don't get me wrong, the digging in isn't looking for codes and secret things and all of these other weird things that people are always coming up with. The digging in is just coming to a greater understanding of what God's talking about. And and what did the angel say in Revelation chapter 19? What is the spirit of prophecy? The spirit of prophecy is Jesus Christ, is our Lord and Savior. And it just brings us into a deeper understanding of the magnitude of what God has done. And so that man back in Psalm 89, you're not going to truly understand everything that's going on. You're not going to truly understand everything that is going on in your lifetime. There's this faith gap between that promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And unfortunately for you, it's hundreds of years and you're right smack in the middle. But I guarantee you, God is faithful and he is going to be true to his promise. And there is going to be one, a descendant of David, who is going to sit on the throne for all of eternity. 
be strengthened through the knowledge of God's word and the knowledge that our God is truly faithful. And so what I want to do here tonight is just to close, close looking at six reasons why we can depend upon the faithfulness of God to be our help in the midst of our trials. And the first reason that we can look upon the Lord during our trials, why he is, His faithfulness reigns in our life, is because God's life does not change. God's life does not change. He does not sleep or slumber. He does not get sick and he does not die. He does not forget. He does not change his mind and he does not lose interest. One of the reasons that he will never leave us or forsake us is, is that he will always be around. He will always be there. He cannot change for the better because God is absolute good. And he cannot change for the worse because he is absolute good and there's no bad that will ever exist in his life. He is and always has been perfect, so he always will be perfect. Having not been created, he does not get old. And so this is the one who looks over us and this is the one who cares for us. This is the one who is faithful in our life. Secondly, God's character does not change. We are told in Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7, basically the definition of who God is. It says, And the Lord passed before him, Moses, <clears throat> and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, he's merciful and gracious. He's long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means cleansing the guilty, the idea is he's just, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So as God is merciful and gracious, he's always going to be merciful and gracious. He's going to be that way to me. As he's long-suffering, he's always going to be long-suffering. Abounding in goodness and truth, he's always going to be abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, as he has done it in the past, he's going to do it in the future. As he's been just with his judgment as well, he's always going to be that way. It's why the Lord is called the rock, because he's solid and he's permanent. Remember prudential life insurance? I, I think they did, were they Mutual? No, it was Mutual of Omaha. But Prudential Life Insurance, remember what their logo was? I don't know if they even still exist. It, no, not Plymouth Rock, the Rock of Gibraltar. Yeah, it was the rock because it was permanent and it was steadfast. That was what they were trying to get across as far as their insurance company. And I don't think they exist anymore, so it wasn't a real good illustration. But our God, our God is solid and he's sure. Thirdly, God's truth does not change. If truth changes, then either it never was truth or we had a superficial, improper understanding of the truth. God's truth, the word that describes who God is and how he interacts with mankind, never changes. Look through your Bible from cover to cover. Show me one truth there that has ever changed. You won't be able to find it because truth doesn't change and God's word is truth. Fourthly, God's ways do not change. Sin will always be sin. So the argument again, you know, for homosexuality or whatever it might be is, well, society has changed since the word of God came. Well, yes, it has, but it hasn't been good. But God's word does not change. That which God has proclaimed to be sin at the beginning is still sin today. Evil will always be judged. The obedient will always be blessed. Grace will always be free, and you will always be saved. 
Fifthly, God's purposes do not change. He's constantly working out his plan. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. History changes, times change, people change, and the more they change, really, the more they stay the same. It's what the preacher looked in Exodus. He saw these changes coming, rivers flowing into the sea, but as they would dump into the sea, they would come back and rain down, and there was just this big cycle. Again, the more these things change, the more the reality we see that nothing actually ever changes, but our God doesn't change, and that's good. Sixthly, his salvation is still the same. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so we have these things that are, again, as the, the writer of Hebrews says, they're an anchor to our soul. We need to, just as a ship needs to be anchored in the midst of a storm to find stability, not just to be tossed to and fro, these things are anchors to our soul to have stability in the midst of the storms that we go through. It's as if the psalmist has come to a knowledge of this understanding as he comes to the end of this psalm. Verse 51, with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. But then he just seems to come to this conclusion. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Kind of like um, Job did. The Lord's give and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He just has this quick turning point and this realization of God. And it's almost as if he has seen God and he is seated upon the throne. He's got this vision of God somehow, some way, I don't know if it's through his word or just remembrance, whatever. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. In Revelation, the promise we've been given today, verses 12 through 13, and behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. The idea is the first and the last of the Greek alphabet. He contains all. He's the word. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so God's word, God's word is strong. If God's word is strong in our life, regardless of the situation, we're going to hurt without a doubt. We're going to mourn, but we're not going to mourn as people who have no hope. We do these things in trust in God, understanding what God is doing. Because again, he's not preparing me for heaven. That's already happened in my relationship with Jesus Christ. He's preparing me for a good work in this life. No better purpose than to be used for God's glory. Father, once again, as you are faithful, we just thank you, Lord, that we see that basically on every page of the scriptures. And so, Father, I pray that every person in here would, be, would, would have that realization that this is unmerited faithfulness, Lord. This is faithfulness that we don't deserve, but you are still faithful to us nonetheless. And so, God, continue to correct us and change us as necessary. I pray for our trials that are sure to come, Lord, that we would have eyes to see your leading. But I pray, Father, most of all, we would realize what you are preparing us for and be obedient when that call comes. And so, Lord, the psalmist, he, he was looking at these things at a disadvantage. 
Father, we have the advantage of looking back and to see the reality of these things and to see how you have fulfilled your promises. You were faithful back then, and Lord, this is to give us a surety that you will be faithful today in our lives and in our future as well. Because of that, God, we just thank you and praise you. I pray for this last worship song, Lord. I pray that you would bless it and that you would even magnify it in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we would sing it out, that, Lord, it would truly be a response to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? A couple of things. A week from this Sunday, we are going to be having a morning of praise and worship. We haven't done that in quite a while, just a time of reading Scripture and just praising the Lord, and then we'll be celebrating communion. And then I think it's on that same day. This, um, this Sunday is going to be the last day, ladies, for you to make sure that you have at least $50 down deposit. This is Calvary Chapel, Ontario marketing. Um, $50 down deposit on your retreat because it's going to be the week after that we put your names into a hat and we draw your name. Um, I've already been offered 20 bucks to draw somebody's name, so I am taking offers. Uh, I'm kidding. (laughs) Anyway, somebody did offer me 20 bucks, but I think they were joking. Uh, (laughs) There she is. (laughs) Anyway, God bless you guys. See you Sunday.